I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Andy Rowe Show. Major General Paul Nansen served in the British Army in Northern Ireland, the Gulf War, the Bosnian War, the Iraq War, and the war in Afghanistan. He was also the commander of the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. From the home of the Royal Fusiliers in the Tower of London, the Major General is going to tell us about being bombed, how he put together and completed a prisoner extraction, and how they train officers to deal with life and death decisions in the heat of battle. I hope you enjoy the episode. You know how important it is to keep your immune system as strong as possible, particularly coming into the cold and flu season. The guys over at Suns are always looking out for ways to help you with your health, and they've done it again with their new Ultimate Immune Health Supplement. Its special ingredient is the beta-glucan Wellmune, clinically proven in 12 scientific trials. One trial in marathon runners led to a 40% reduction in respiratory infections. Another study showed a 71% reduction in the number of individuals reporting cold and flu symptoms. So if you're already taking a multivitamin or are looking for something to strengthen your immune system this autumn, then check out suns.co.uk and use the code ANDY30 to get a massive 30 quid off your first order. It's the perfect supplement for fighting viruses as well as recovery from sport and weekend hangovers. And importantly, by using our code, you'll be supporting the podcast and the work we do. Major General Paul Nansen, thank you very much for coming on the show. Huge pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you so much for well, having us because we're in the Tower of London at the moment, the HQ of the Royal Fusiliers. Tell me a little bit about why the Fusiliers are based here. And let's, let's just set the scene because it's a pretty remarkable place for a lad from New Zealand to be sitting and doing an interview at the moment. What's the significance of this place for the Fusiliers? Well, it's our, it's our home. So if you go back far enough into history in the 1700s, this was the, uh, the Royal Armouries where, they, you know, where the King, King James, kept his ammunition and his weaponry. And at the time, he wanted to have an organisation that could protect it. So he formed, formed a regiment to do exactly that, to guard the Tower of London. So right now you can hear the ravens going out there's actually a story behind the ravens isn't there well yeah the, the story is that if the ravens if the ravens leave the tower of london that's bad news so the good news is if you're going through a tough time at the moment it's not going to be the end of the world the ravens are still clearly at the tower of london we can definitely vouch for the ravens <laughs> if, if nothing else yeah so the fusion is still defending the tower of london because i know there's the beef eaters so the regiment was formed by king james issued with a weapon called a fusil and therefore became his regiment of fusiliers oh what's a fusil he was a French musket of the day, okay. quite quite advanced, and therefore equipped his you know this this organisation with the best weapon he could find, the fusil, fusiliers, uh, and we've been here ever since. Yeah, because the, the the beef eaters, the ones that you know, if you've ever been to the Tower of London, that kind of dress a little bit different to most security guards. They are actually army guys, aren't they? They're not like 
just security people that are dressed up for tourists. No, they're Yemen, Yemen waters. B features, I think it's that they're um, ex ex military from all three services, and they they once they retire from the army, then they can apply and be selected to become a Yemen warder. And they get to live here as well, don't they? Yeah, they do. They've got little little row of cottages behind behind here actually, and they they what get to that? live. What a great what a great dress. Talk me through the decision that you made to originally first go into the army. I genuinely wanted to join the army from when I was a very small boy. And it was a combination of a number of things. I suppose growing up in the 70s and 80s, you know, we still had things like comics and, you know, commando books and that sort of mm. thing that I used to get every week. And I so you read about, read about that sort of thing. And, you know, films on TV, there's a lot more of the war films in those days. So you experience that. And then my, my next door neighbour, he was an old, an old chap who I used to go and sit with and talk. And he'd been in the Second World War. He'd, he'd been in, in Italy and been on D-Day actually. So he, he used to talk about it, and so and his sons were going to Sandhurst. So his sons were going through the whole, going into the army bit, so I, I, I sort of saw what they were doing. And then I went out to school, I joined the cadets, and so by the time I was, you know, 14, 15, I, I decided that's what I wanted to do. Why did you want to go to Sandhurst? I know you, you mentioned the, your neighbours, but why, why become an officer? Because a lot, of, a lot of guys that go into the military want to, get in the mixer, want to get into the SAS, like they're the, you know, they're the big dogs, they're, you know, that's the, they're the heroes, the action men type guys. Why being an officer and being, not saying that that's not, but <laughs> why, why, why Sandhurst? I, I chose to be an officer because that was the sort of direction that you know, people have said at school. I suppose the influence of what was going on across the road and seeing them going in and hearing about their experience at Sandhurst, I like the feel of that. And I think I wanted the I wanted the responsibility of of, of leadership. I suppose I saw mm. I saw that as uh, as a way forward. That's not to say you don't get that as a soldier. Mm. Of course, you can be a leader as a soldier. It's a ridiculous thing to say, but you know what I mean. I just I just fancied that way that way of way of. You want to be journey. calling some shots. Yeah, I, I mean, it's really. I mean, it's, now I'm thinking back on it. You know, I don't consciously remember making that decision between soldier and officer. I suppose yeah. the environment I was in led me down that route. And then you mentioned going into Northern Ireland for, you know, it's a pretty hectic place to go straight into. What were your memories of like going in there for the first time? It wasn't, wasn't straight away. I went from, from Sandhurst, I went to my battalion and we went out to Cyprus, which was slightly more pleasant. We did the okay. United Nations tour in Cyprus. Just so sunning what, yourself. Well, it was, well, it was a bit of work, but yeah, it was quite, it was actually very nice. It was a very nice tour, very good start. But it wasn't, it was a couple of years later that I went to Northern Ireland. I didn't, I didn't go with my own regiment i went i was attached to a different regiment and i went out to uh, to belfast as i said before that was the first time that i'd sort of been in a in, in a sort of operational environment mm. was that hard being in northern ireland because most war zones that you go into the people that are supposedly the the enemy or the people you got to watch out for are pretty far removed from your background but when you go into northern ireland like these people you could be having a beer with any other day of the week. How yeah. hard was that for you to process? And, and, and how hard was that also to see who was the enemy? Yeah. I mean, the, again, the training was very good in terms of, of preparing us for that. But again, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, walking down the streets of Belfast, walking down the streets of Manchester or, or anywhere, it's, it's, you know, it's very similar. You're getting, getting your mind around it. Uh, um, I mean, we just did it because we were, that's what we were mm. taught to do and we'd rehearsed it and practiced it. And, you know, but in terms of working out who the enemy was, you didn't think of it as 
well, I suppose you did think of it as enemy, but they were terrorists, and they we, we realised that it wasn't you know it wasn't groups of them; it was individuals, and and there was a there was a very much you know what the threat was 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 mainly from individuals who would do things to you. So it wasn't sort of force on force. You know, there would be situations where you'd be facing you know riot type situations, which could escalate quite quickly. There are other situations where you'd be you know talking to locals and just you know chewing the fat and having a normal time and it, the thing to get used to is you go from one situation where you're walking down the street and it's very normal it's just like being at home and then very quickly you're into a situation where you're facing uh, you know a group of potential rioters or you, you see somebody who you've recognised off the off the mug shots and you're into a completely different mm. environment so it's that sort of you know, change of context that was constantly happening which was something that needed to get used to but we got used to it quite quickly can you remember any sort of specific hairy moments in Northern Ireland? Well, I suppose the hairiest when I got I got uh, I got blown up. What? So yeah, just I, drop that bombshell. Well, <laughs> well it was uh, quite a funny story actually. So we were on a a night patrol, and we went to an area and we had to set up a, a vehicle control point VCP. So vehicle control point. We had two Land Rovers, armored Land Rovers. You position them on the road so you form like a chicane, and you put your warning signs out. And you know, as cars come through, you stop the car. You ask to see some identification and you do a cursory look in the car. And you can pull them over and actually search the car if you've got any reason to think that they're suspicious. And you do have big plate checks on them, so you're constantly radioing. And you say, you know, you read off the, the number plate, it goes to a controller and they say clear. Or, and if you get one that they go stop and search or stop check, they say, then you've got to stop them and search them. So I, as the patrol commander, I'm the guy on the radio picking the cars and the boys are doing the searching. I have to go for a wee. Oh. Desperate for a wee, so I say to the troops, "Just go for a I nip off down the, uh, which I shouldn't have done. You should always stay inside the VCP. But anyway, I go down the road and I, I go have a wee, and someone throws a bomb at me. So they throw it was a drogue bomb. So a drogue bomb is a, it looks, it's like a, you know, those things the kids throw with like a, like a looks like a rugby ball with like a tail on it. Oh yeah, like so a they, howler. They, yeah, like a howler. Yeah, but they make these things out of cans, you know, deodorant cans or you know, big cans, WD forty yeah. cans. Pack them with explosive and shrapnel, put a tail on it, and then they throw them, in this case, throw them over the top of a building. At an interview, it lands on the pavement, sends a load of shrapnel, and away you go. That's, that's the plan. It landed, landed behind me, quite a long way behind me, and fortunately, didn't do anything other than to give me a nasty concussion and sort my ears out oh, a bit. Goodness. Goodness. So, so yeah. you, you'll be... So um, there's a real, don't go for a wee when you're on a VCP. How, oh, wow, that, yeah, that's a close call because yeah, that could have that could have ended very very badly. Could have been very badly yeah, in all sorts of ways. Yeah, and then um, so after that, you know, the first Gulf War starts, and that's massive because it's like well, both Gulf Wars were. But this is even bigger because you know you're in Northern Ireland. That's that's big for the UK. Um, but then the Gulf War is like a you know, the world is watching. Yeah, how are you going into that? Because you that must have almost felt like did it feel like the Super Bowl for you, or was it? oh, God, this is like, this is serious, or you, you guys were, like, gearing up? Cause yeah. Honestly, we were really excited to start off with because, of course, that's what you that's what you train to do. And we were disappointed at first because we, were, we weren't picked to go in the first... There's two waves that went out to the, to the Gulf. So when it all started in the summer of 90, a brigade went out from Germany. 7th, 7th Brigade went out, 7th Armour Brigade. So they all went. We didn't. We were 4th Brigade, 4th Armour Brigade. And we gave all our kit to them they all went off and we just thought that's it they're going to do this and we're going to sit at home and miss it so we were disappointed and of course we wanted to go and prove ourselves and mm. do what we joined the army to do so 
when we were told at Christmas that you're now going as part of Full Brigade, then, you know, we were, we were excited. I mean, you know, looking forward to going. And then we did our training in Germany before we went. And then we got all the, all the vehicles ready, put them onto the ships, flew out there, spent a couple of, couple of months in the desert in Saudi Arabia, um, preparing, training. You know, the, the war itself was, was merciful. You know, the ground war was mercifully short. It was only a few days. But of course, in the build-up, all we had to go on was what we'd been seeing on the TV. And, and that was, you know, the Iran-Iraq war that had been going on for 10 years and what was going on across there and all the chemical weapons and the scuds and, the, you know, the, what, what Saddam had been doing to his own people, let alone mm. others. So, you know, it's, people were apprehensive, obviously, and, and nervous about what, what they might face and, and scared about, you know, what might happen. You know, if you're in a position of, of command at whatever level, to a certain, certain things, it's mercifully you haven't got that much time to think about it because you're looking after everybody else and getting on with it. And when you did have time to think about it, you know, we, we often used to sit, I was, you know, my platoon, we used to sit at night and talk about it and, you know, get our fears out there and, you know, and try and try and deal with it. Can you remember what you said to your men before you went in? For the first one, I don't. I don't remember a sort of... Henry V moment, <laughs> standing on top of my tank. Uh, no, definitely not. I think we, we spoke a lot all the time, telling them what to do, the orders process. You know, you, you naturally stand in front of them. And, and, I, and I've said it many times since, there is a certain amount of theatre in how you deliver a set of orders. You know, if you, if you are going into a difficult situation, then you have to be confident in the way you deliver the orders because they will, they will sense that confidence and they will therefore be confident themselves. If mm. you're lacklustre and... You know, not really believing what you're talking oh, we're about. In trouble here, boys. And, you know, if you're a bit sort of, you know, this is going to be a bit dodge. They're, they're going to sense. So I'm hoping. I can't remember, but I'm hoping I was confident in the way I delivered it. You know, even though I was feeling nervous, I hope that didn't come across because, you know, I wanted to uh, instill them with the confidence that we would all be okay. And, and I knew we were going to be okay because we were a good team. We, we trained really hard. We knew one another. You know, we were all mates and, you know, we were going to be okay. So hopefully that came across in whatever I said. Mm. And I can't remember what I said. What about in the second one? Because you mentioned you can't remember the first one. Second time. one I can. I remember very clearly we got, we got together. So I was a company commander then. This is 2003, 120-odd men. Again, it was all men. And I can remember very clearly when we were told we were going over, within the next 48 hours, getting them all together because we were in a concentration area. So we were, you know, we were able to get together, got them all together. And I, and I spoke to them about, you know, this is this is what we're going to have to do, and um, this is why we're going to, this is why we've got to do it. It's the right thing to do. There'd been a lot of very negative press on the second, the second one, two thousand and three, and in our in our concentration area, where we lived on our vehicles, we were we were going for central feeding in a big tent, so they, that's where we got fed, and they had Sky TV, so we were watching Sky TV, and we were watching all the stuff about weapons of mass destruction, you know, the prime minister saying. We've got to do this because of that, and 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 we got the uh, we got that sense that you know, the public weren't necessarily as behind us as they had been on in in, in the first one. Mm. It wasn't quite as clear cut, and of course there was all the stories about people not getting the right amount of body armor, not getting the right equipment, and I can remember thinking we just got to put a line under this, and we just got to get after it and get it done. So that's what my my, my talk to them was all about whatever you've heard, whatever, you know, you're, you're thinking, this is now about us, why company, and we've got to go and do what we've got to do, get it done and come back. I'm going to ask you the question. Do, do you think 
the war was justified? Did you think that what the reasons why you went over there were justified in the end? Do you have any sort of thoughts on that, or are you allowed to even have thoughts? No, on I can say I can say what I like now. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm, not I'm not serving. I, I. I mean, the media were all over us, and we had a, we had embedded media in our company, so we had a ITN a reporter and cameraman travel with us when we went across the border. So I'll come back to that. In terms of did I think it was right? I did I did think it was the right thing to do. I mean, I'd been involved in the first Gulf War and, and there was all talk then of we should have gone on into Iraq and, and removed removed uh, him. Second Gulf War, with what, what, what had happened since and the way he'd been treating his people, if you just took that alone, it was probably justified, I would say. Stand fast, weapons of mass destruction and, and what had mm-hmm. happened in 2001. And then if I was in any doubt, when we eventually got into Basra and the stories of what had happened in Basra before we got there, you know, with the with the with the bath party and how they treated their people, and I could tell you stories that would make your hair curl on some of the things we heard that had happened. Really? Can you tell us some of those? I mean, one story that, that sort of you know haunts me is that if you weren't a member of the bath party, you oh, had, they were the real bad yeah. fellows. Eh? They were the guys that you didn't want to get caught by. So if you weren't a member of the bath party, you weren't entitled to do certain things. Right. And one one guy I was talking to had said that he his uh, his little little girl his daughter, the guy had, you were talking to, yeah, had been doing ballet ballet lessons, and he'd been accosted by members of the Bath Party saying, "Well, you know, you're not a member of the Bath Party. Your daughter is not entitled to be doing this." Uh, he said, "Well, it's ridiculous. It's, a, it's ballet lessons. I mean, for goodness' sake." Anyway, a week later, he got a parcel and it was the head of his little girl in uh, in a parcel that was sent to him. Around. Now I can't verify that, but that's just one story of many that I heard of of what was going on. And if that's the sort of the way they treat their own people, then mm. perhaps it was best he was removed. Yeah, perhaps it was for the best. So, Major General was your rank when you got out of the army, and you yeah. left not long ago last year. Last year, excuse me for asking, but like, where does that rank in the hierarchy thing? Because like, you were, in, I know you're in charge of Sandhurst, you were the commander there, but where does like who are you reporting into and how many who's reporting into you and how many people are below you? Well, I joined I joined the army as an officer. You can join as an officer or, or a soldier. Went to Sandhurst back in the 80s and became a commissioned, became a second lieutenant, which is the first rank in the in the sort of officer chain of command. As a second lieutenant, you're responsible for, for a platoon uh, or a troop. In my case, a platoon in the infantry, which is 30, 30 men as it was in those days. It's a big responsibility. Uh, and it was all men in those days. Obviously, it's open to um, to females now. But but then, so that's the first rung on the ladder, and then you you get promoted through through the, through the the officer ranks, and eventually, if you do the right things and and get the right um, reports and you know have the right backgrounds and all that sort of thing in terms of knowledge, skills, and experience, you will move through the ranks. Major general is there's another two ranks above that. Wow! So you're right up there. You're you're having pretty high level discussions about what's going on and. You know well, everything that's happening in the army. Yeah, and, and as a response, you know, in terms of, of um, you know, levels of command, I, I finished off as, as, a, as a general officer commanding, so I was responsible for initial training and for recruiting for the army, which is, you know, uh, a lot of people. You served in Northern Ireland in both Gulf Wars, didn't you? Yeah. Can you remember the first time when you had to actually go out and, and lead a patrol? Um, I can remember. I can remember. Yeah, quite vividly, actually. Um, it, you know, Northern Ireland. I suppose the first time that you are going into a potentially dangerous environment. 
So you do obviously that obviously does focus your mind. But as I as I wrote about in the in the book, you know, the first time going into actual combat, so into a war situation, was in 1991 in the in the first Gulf War and liberation of Kuwait. There's a lot of stuff going on around you as you as you get told you're going, and then you've got to prepare your kit and equipment and your people to be able to go. So you're 100 miles an hour. You're focused on on that, and then suddenly. You know, you get to a, the end of a long journey and you're sitting literally waiting to go into combat. You know, you're waiting for the right conditions to be able to launch and go and do whatever you've got to do. At that, that point, I think, was the, the moment I remember very clearly thinking, flip, this is serious stuff. Yeah. You know, this is not just about going into harm's way and therefore potentially being hurt or killed or whatever. This is also about, well, I mean, these guys are relying on me to, to make the right call to make the right decisions because, you know, I'm going to have to tell them what to do. And, and therefore, you know, if I make a, if I make a balls up at this, then they're going to suffer. Can you talk me through a little bit more about that process and, and what you specifically would do to someone in Sandhurst or what, what you would do to try and prepare someone for failure, I guess, on the battlefield? Well, I think trying to, trying to make training as realistic as possible and therefore, you know, you, you get into that um, mindset that you are, in, in a difficult situation where, you know, the decisions you make are as, as realistic as they, as they possibly can be. That's the first thing. So introducing into training and development, the realism, you know, the operational focus, you know, that's, that's really important. And then trying to create the same sort of scenarios that they would face in that sort of situation. So put them in the same place where they have to make a decision and then see what decision they make. You would have had to prepare a lot of patrols. You would have had to prepare a lot of missions how do you go about starting that preparation so have you got any examples of like what what you would do to make sure that your preparation and the plan that goes into that mission is going to be flawless yeah. I mean it's, it's a pretty tried and tested process in, in the military and in the army in terms of how do you how do you get some instructions and turn that into a plan and then put that into into execution I mean it's a pretty tried and tested process if I give you an example of, you know, a specific instance, when I was a company commander in Iraq in 2003, one of the things we had to do, we had to take out a, a, a fighting patrol to go into, into Basra, the city, to take a prisoner. That was our objective, Ooh. to take a prisoner. So we were, getting, we were getting mortared on a bridge. We were in location and we, were, we knew roughly where they were. So the idea was to go in to the target location, try and find the mortars. But if you couldn't, get somebody and bring them back for interrogation. That was the that was oh, the plan. Awesome. So we were given we were given this orders. I then sat down with my headquarters team and we worked out what we had to do in terms to, to achieve that. So how we were going to get there, what we were going to do on the objective, who was going to do what. You know, we just we just worked it through as a plan. So we could we could ask for the right intelligence background, um, aerial photography of the objective, topographical stuff, as much as we possibly could to to work out you know, the, the context of what we were going into. Mm. We, we worked out who's going to go. So we worked out how much, you know, what, what capabilities did we need to do that? And in the end, we came down. I mean, we took, we took the best part of, of, of two platoons. So roughly about 50, 50 men, it was all men, uh, would go in. And we had attachments. So we had a, a mortar fire controller who could bring in mortars for us. We had an air controller who could bring in air for us. And we had a, a forward observation officer who could bring in artillery for us. So there were attachments who came into our team so that the team could do what it had to do. 
So it wasn't just us, it wasn't just fusiliers, it was specialist arms as well. All 50 people came in and I gave orders to all 50 people. This is what we're going to do, specific tasks for all the groups. And then uh, we had an opportunity then to, to practice. We were based in an airfield, so we had plenty of space. So we, ma we marked out the objective, we marked out the route, how we were going to get there. It wasn't the same, obviously it wasn't to scale, because it was a long way, but we marked out, you know, how we were going to, our formation for getting there, what would happen if something happened on the way there, you know, if someone saw us or we took a, we took an incoming fire, whatever, we worked out and everybody practiced what they would do. You know, I had people standing around sort of being contrarian, so saying, well, you know, what happens if it goes wrong here? And, and that was on purpose. Yeah, we, we try and stress the plan. So, you, you know, you, you, we call it wargaming or rock drilling, whatever you want to call it. But it's, you know, when, you, when you've got your people there, you think about what could go wrong. And then you talk about what could go wrong. And then you work out what you do if things go wrong and how, you would, how you'd respond. So everybody knows, you know, if Jimmy gets hurt here, where's the stretcher? Where's the morphine? You know, where's the, how do we look after him? So everybody's physically been through it. And it's a rehearsal. It's a rehearsal for the main event. You know, it's an opportunity to make sure every single man in that patrol knew exactly what he had to do. And more importantly, what he had to do if things went wrong or things changed. Yeah. Because one of the old, the old adage which everybody uses in the military is, you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy. You know, things you know, can be the best plan in the world. Yeah. But things will go wrong. Was it Mike Tyson said everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face? It's easier until you get hit. Yeah, I had a yeah. great plan. Then I got in the ring and someone hit me or something like that. Yeah, yeah. but you're right. It's exactly the same thing. So you've got to you've got to prepare for the what ifs. So we did a lot of that and we practiced it. And then the main event came. We were carried down to our drop off position by our armored vehicles. We then got out with all our kit and then we tabbed across across to the outskirts of the village. Tabbing's walking right. Walking, yeah, slowly because you're carrying a lot of kit. So it's, tabbing's quite quite a. Well, I suppose it can be fast, but this was slow. I mean, it was pretty, pretty rough conditions, so it was quite slow. We had drones that were helping to look in, look in advance. So we had a controller who was there showing me what was up ahead so we could see the target area and we could see the hot spots and all that sort of thing. But the, the route out was pretty uneventful. We, we got into position quite quickly. The plan was to have a cutoff effectively. So we surrounded the target the house and then we were going to send a team into the building who were going to try and find the mortar and, and lift the guy. Hopefully, we wouldn't have to do any shooting, pick the guy up, and we'd come out. But if anything happened, we were there ready to go if, if things went wrong. So we got, got into position. This is where it gets a bit hazy because things started to move quite quickly. Something happened. Someone started firing. Really? Not sure who it was, but all, all heck broke loose. So you'd found the right spot? Well, we, we weren't sure. We weren't sure if it was the right spot, to be honest with you, because we were... The, the intelligence wasn't that good. We knew in the right area. We weren't sure if it was exactly the right house. There's there a couple of buildings around. But anyway, we call it sort of a bit like the, bit of a chaos box. I mean, just things just started happening. Everyone's trying to work out what's going on. I got in the back blast of a of an anti tank rocket that had been fired by one of my, one of our own people, and so I got caught in the back blast. So I couldn't I couldn't I was concussed. I couldn't see anything. What's the back blast? So. It's so it was, a, it was a, a light anti-tank weapon that had been fired by a fusilier into a building. And I'd been directly behind it when he fired. He should have checked his back blast area. Oh, really? oh, so you're standing behind the Behind rock. him. But it's quite, it's not, it's not very dangerous, but it, it sends out quite a lot of stuff from behind. And if you get caught in it, it does, you know, just um, sort of wind you a bit. Unbeknown to me, 
the team, the team at the back had seen competence coming out, they'd engage the competence and a the, the person you're after, the person. well, people with people. weapons, yeah. So they'd engage them, and a small team uh, who wasn't the original team that was supposed to go into the building had used their initiative and had gone into the building under the cover of the of the fire that was going on, found the individual, uh, and got him out, and we then managed to extract ourselves. Uh, we brought in artillery to cover our withdrawal and some attack helicopters came in as well to, to cover our withdrawal and we managed to pull everybody out and get back to our vehicles and get back to the airport. How did you go from commanding in the field to being the commander of Sandhurst? I mean, this wasn't the first time, you know, we, we as we go through our careers, we, we're not always on operations and we're not always commanding in, you know, regimental duty, we call it. So, you know, you flick from being in your regiment, commanding a platoon or a company or a battalion to we call it on, on the staff where you're you're effectively you know running running the running the army be it a training organization or you know procurement or whatever it may be so you flick between the two sort of broad roles so our training our, our education uh, enables us to do both and you know we get we get the right sort of leadership development at the right point in our careers to be able to fit us to be able to do both both of those so, so the answer to your question, by the time I got to be Commandant Sandhurst, you know, I'd done a few jobs in the, on the staff already, so I had an idea of, of the processes, the procedures that are required to, to lead what effectively is a, is a business. For those that are listening to this that have maybe heard of Sandhurst or haven't heard of Sandhurst, can you give us a, a sort of raw rundown of, like the, of, of what Sandhurst is? Because it's, it, it's a big deal. It's a Royal College, Royal Military College originally. Um, back in 1812 when it first opened its doors. And it came into being because yeah, back, back before that, young men were commissioned, received commissions to become officers in the British Army purely based on the fact that they um, had money, all well-connected. And so they, you know, if, you, if you could buy a commission, you had enough money, you would you'd pin your rank on and you'd go and lead soldiers in battles. And funny old thing, they hadn't been performing particularly well because they're only they're only young, <laughs> yeah. and you know they you know some of them did really well, but majority of them just didn't know what to do. So it was decided that they needed to have some education, and so this college was built by a chap called Le Marchant, who said we need to be somewhere where they go and get trained to be leaders and officers. So that's what Sanders the Sanders was built for that, and it was originally for officers who were going into the infantry and the cavalry. And they went there and they did they did training to enable them to lead their men in battle. But they went as they were called gentlemen cadets in those days. They were only young. I mean, they were 14, 15, and they did their education. I think I think it was a couple of years they did there before they go off their regiment. So at least they had something hmm. to, uh, to to help them cope. There's been some big names that have gone through there, mm. hasn't there? It's what, Churchill, he went through there? Yep. Prince William? Prince William, um, yep. And uh, Prince Harry? And the thing about Sanders, of course, is not just British cadets. They have um, international cadets. Right, okay. So other countries uh, send their people there. And again, there's been some some big hitters, as they say, uh, from, from other countries. And I think currently, I might be out of date slightly, but I think nine heads of state around the world are ex-Sandhurst. Really? James Blunt went there, didn't he? Did James Blunt went there, yeah. Oh, yeah, he's a name. Is, his name. Is it typically rich kids that go there? No. No, it's not, and that's that's one of the one of the reasons that um, you know we were keen to write the book is to dispel the myths, and that's one of the myths is that to go to Sandhurst it's a bit like I was just talking about back in the day you have to have lots of money mm. 
born with a silver spoon in your mouth. And that's not true. The perception is very much that. But it's, uh, it's about how good you are. Honestly, it's about how good you are. And it's about having the potential to lead women and men. And you, know, you, go, you go to a... You have to have a certain level of, of, of education. You know, you have, to have, you have to have A-levels. As long as you've got that and you're medically able, you will go to a selection board, which is two or three days down at a place called Westbury, where you get put through tests to see if you've got that potential. And if you've got that potential, doesn't matter what your background is, where you're from, then you can go to Sandhurst. You talk about those first five weeks at Sandhurst. You know, you're taking basically, let's say in general terms, you're taking a civilian and you're turning them into a into an officer. There's certain things that you do to break people down. There's certain things that you're, you're trying to get them back down to, the, to find out their, what, what their raw character is, right? What's the point or what's the meaning behind the whole bed making situation because that's a, that's what everyone talks about the army you've got to learn how to make your bed you've got to make it properly you've got to iron your duvet you've got to you know there's it's it's a it's a big deal what can you sort of give us the sort of background and the meaning behind why that's such a big thing I mean, there's lots of uh, lots of things behind it firstly it is about making sure that everybody you know starts off with the same baseline looking after yourself looking after your your kit and equipment is is that baseline. It doesn't matter where you've come from, what you've done in the past. You know, suddenly you're thrown into a situation where there's 30 of you in the morning having to show your rooms to a colour sergeant, your instructor. And if it's not good enough, you'll be showing it again. And it's just the the, the, the fact. And it, and, it, and it drives, you know, personal resilience. It drives teamwork because everybody's helping one another out and making sure, you know, if you're not very good at, folding your socks then someone will be they'll come and help you fold your socks you know it's that sort of thing yeah there's a saying about what everything starts from a folded sock or something What's yeah we, we taught a smiley sock yeah we taught I mean, it sounds ridiculous but there's method in the madness you know you taught how to fold your, your clothes up and it's got to be it's got to be the same way so socks have to be folded a certain way and piled up in your locker a certain way and they've got to be smiley side up so they're all smiling at you it's about habit forming it's about you know getting it right it's about having small wins and the math the method and the madness is that if you if you can do it if you can have that attention to detail if you can look after your your kit and equipment and, and make sure it is spotless and it is good and your bed is 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 right then you'll look after yourself when you're looking after your weapons and your equipment in the, in, a, in an operational environment you know you'll take it for red that your kit's okay because you've got to look after 30 other people's kit mm. and make sure they're in good order and make sure their weapons are clean and all that sort of thing. So it's about making sure that you, you have that resilience, that ability to look after yourself so that you can look after your people ultimately. Do you still make Fold your my bed socks? <laughs> no, of course not. Of course not. Do you still make not. your bed like that? I do, I do. And this sounds a bit weird, but I do make my bed in the morning. Fitted sheets now or? No, I've got a duvet, bizarrely. And they do get duvets eventually at Sanders. It's not, it's not um, bed blocks for the entire time. But no, I don't, I don't. I mean, again, my wife will be laughing at this now saying he's, he's untidy, doesn't fold anything up. But I think I'm reasonably tidy, reasonably tidy. I do try and look after my stuff. And, you know, some, some habits have never left me from, from Santos, you know, in terms of things like timeliness. Yeah. You know, I, get, I get very edgy if I'm late for anything because it's drummed into us at Santos. You've got to be five minutes before everything. You know, it's rude to be late. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Your book, Stand Up Straight, has some great, great tips in it. And the whole basis of the book is taking your learnings from the military and applying it to yeah. how, how people can apply it to life um, real life. Yeah, yeah, life skills. The opening question, what does it mean to stand up straight? Because there's a lot, there's a lot in behind that. It's not just stand up straight because you know you look immaculate or you look you, you look professional. There's there's a lot that goes. There's science involved in standing up straight. There's a whole lot more to it than just the phrase, isn't there? Yeah, stand up straight resonates with anyone who's been to Sanders because that's what people shout at you all the time, particularly your colour sergeant <laughs> or your sergeant major when you're on parade. Now stand up straight, sir. Look expensive, but of course there is there is that. I mean there is the you know stand, standing up straight on parade is about pride appearance you know standing straight in in the face of the enemy back in the day was about showing no fear you know when they when in the days when they were forming squares and in ranks and everything you know to stand up straight showed that you were confident about what you were going to do so there's a bit of that but i think in terms in and the science in the book is about if you if you if you hold yourself straight if you keep your back straight and 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 hold yourself right it, it's it's good for your own you know, personal resilience in your own personal mental mental state, and and so that was the play on the title. It was about you know, stand up straight as a military sort of requirement, but also it's about your own personal state of mind and and your own personal feelings. Let's round things off now with your top tips for that you learnt in Sandhurst that someone can apply to their everyday life. I mean, interestingly enough, I think the you know, looking after yourself is a good one. I think that ability to look after yourself mentally. I mean, we, we talk a lot about in the book about physically looking after yourself and forming habits and all that sort of thing. But I, I, there is one chapter in, in the book in particular about, you know, packing your burger and, and we, we try and make the analogy about, you know, your mental health. And I think, you know, particularly now, and, and you look around the place where, you know, people have been under a certain, perhaps more stress than normal, given what we've been through with COVID and everything. I think now more than ever, looking after yourself mentally is, 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 is really important. And I think one, I, I've learned to do it over my time, not necessarily at Santos, but in my time in the military, I've, I've, I've learned how to look after my, my, my emotions, you know, look after my mental health. And I had a, a you know, I was, I was getting quite emotional when I was talking about some of the stuff that I was talking in Iraq. Mm. And I, you know, I've learned how to control that. And I've learned to, to recognize my uh, stressing, stress, you know, triggers, I've learned to recognise my stresses and I've learned coping strategies. And I learned that through through the military. And I think it's something that could equally apply into the civilian world. That would be my first tip. Look after yourself. You know, the we talked about the fighting patrol and, and 
and doing rehearsals and thinking through a problem mm. and thinking through the what ifs. Yeah. Thinking to the finish of a, of, of a problem or think of an incident, thinking through a challenge that you may have is, is not a bad, it's not a bad one to take away. You know, if you've got time, rehearse something. And if you're going on a job interview, perhaps get someone to rehearse some. It makes sense. You know, rehearse some some discussions or questions or what have you. So you you get in the frame of being able to sit properly. Yeah. What are your strengths and weaknesses? But also, yeah, just just some maybe some things that the um, interviewer might ask you, just so you get in the swing of it before you go. So the last um, tip I think is about what we said in the book about taking a knee uh, or having a condor moment. The condor moment came from a, an advert, which you'll be far too young to remember. But back in the day when you were allowed to smoke, condor condor was a uh, pipe tobacco. Right, and the advert on TV was always the 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 guy. Something goes, something's going really badly wrong. I can't. Remember, there's lots of different things, but his things are going badly wrong, and the guy's just there filling his pipe, and he he waits to react until he's filled his pipe and lit it, and it's very slow and laborious. And then, of course, it's you know, off he goes, and he makes the right decision, and off he goes. So in the army, it's called take a condor moment. That means you know, just when things go wrong, when things go bang, and it's all going a hundred miles around you, that. If you're the if you're the person in in charge, then you know your decision the decision you're going to make has got to be the right one, mm. or as right as possible. So you've got to give yourself time to think. So we say take a condor moment. So let the rest of the team deal with whatever's going on. You just take a pace back, take a knee, and just think. Because I've heard of stories like that. It is with where SAS guys or guys on the front lines, especially the British. We'll, we'll stop and have a condor moment and make a cup of tea in a war zone with bullets flying over the head. So they'll stop and they'll actually have a brew. Yeah. Literally for that purpose. Yeah. And I've, I've not actually done that, but I can imagine exactly where they're going. And, and, you know, and, that, and that's the same principle. It's about, you know, don't rush. Don't rush to make a decision. There's lots of medical reasons why you should as well, because not, you know, making a decision in the heat of the moment, things aren't working properly and you're probably using the wrong side of your brain. And that's a, so give yourself time to think. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good good tip for anybody. And it's, you know, it's things like, you know, you, you, you find yourself doing it, don't you? That, you know, you're in a car and someone cuts you up and the first thing you do is, you know, <laughs> shout and screaming yeah. and you realise the kids are in the back and, oh dear, why did I do that? You know, it's just, if you just think through it or, or you write out, someone sends you a, an email and you don't really like what they said, so you send them on directly back, and then two minutes later you think, oh, I wish I hadn't said that now. Yeah, I might have gone a bit too hot yeah, with I mean, that. I just Always sleep on an angry email. Exactly, all that sort of thing. So same, we work on the same principle, and it worked for me in one really good instance in, in the first Gulf War. I was, I was with the reconnaissance platoon, and we were out front of our battle group heading towards an objective and had been told that there was nothing in front of us apart from enemy, and so we were looking for the enemy you know and if, if we saw them we were gonna so anything that moved anything was... that moved out there was was fair game it, according to us according to our orders so we were moving it's pretty bad conditions it was dead of night we were looking at everything through our night vision and i got a got a call from from one of the one of the boys on the flank saying we've got vehicles to our front can we can we fire something in my mind something i don't know what it was but something in my mind said just take a knee let's just there's no rush here take a knee so I got on the radio and I, I, I asked, I told him to, to wait and I got back to our headquarters and said, look, can you just confirm that there is nothing out there that could possibly be friendly? And they said, no, 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 it's, uh, it's uh, there's nothing out there. And again, something in the back of my mind just said, you know, oh, I just don't know. But anyway, I said, let's get a bit closer. So to cut a long story short, we got as close as we possibly could to, to positively identif- identify them. And it turned out that they were friendly. They were a, a medical unit that got lost 
from our neighbouring brigade. So had we had we reacted in the heat of the moment... Had you have pressed send on that email, that angry email? If I'd gone that angry email, we'd probably be looking at a, at a friendly friendly casualties, which would not have been good, ever. So thank, thank the lucky stars. But it did teach me a very good lesson that if you can, and you can't always, don't get me wrong, sometimes you've got to go for it. But if you can, just take that condor moment. Remember that bloke filling his pipe <laughs> and just... <laughs> Just think it through. Major Paul Nansen, thank you very much for not only coming on the show, but having us here in the Tower of London. It's been a career highlight. It's amazing. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you for your service as well. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed, Andy. If you want to learn more, Major General Paul Nansen's book is out now. It's called Stand Up Straight, 10 Life Lessons from the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. Yeah, Andy, thanks very much. And, and just, just so I was clear, although it's got my name on the front, many people contributed to that book. You know, the, the, the wonderful staff at the academy, um, people who've been through the academy and gone on to do other things, they all contributed to, and, uh, and, uh, and, and the cadets as well. You know, so it's, a, it's very much a joint effort. And all the proceeds from the book go back to Santos to keep that uh, wonderful institution going. Tim Peake has given you, a, given you a little bit of a mention on here. Astronaut, inspirational, Sandhurst helped me to discover my potential, now discover yours. So it's, you can become an astronaut there if you, you read go. that book. The sky is literally not even <laughs> literally the limit. The limit. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.